0: Uh, what was that? Exodus twenty, or where were they? <laughs> Exodus twenty, the Ten Commandments. That was terrific. I mean, that's not just that they know the Word of God. Watching these children do that, but today we got a picture of two brothers deciding to uh, work together in harmony. Who knows what that will produce in the future um, when things are good when brethren dwell together in unity? Isn't it true? And so what a, what a picture that was um, And I'm grateful for parents that are willing to teach their kids the Word of God And then for the kids to be brave enough to stand in front of people with the Word of God That's a terrific picture Well, good morning um, Okay, so here I'm going to get right into the message But we've got to have a proverb first, right? Because, you know, I'd never do this so without, without a proverb Today is the 21st I chose, verse 23 From chapter 21 Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble So we've been in a series on transition, which is um, um, letting the Lord have his way in changing us and shaping us. You know that the Lord's at work shaping you, right? He's not... He loves you, but he's not willing to let you stay the way you are. He wants you to be more like Christ tomorrow than you are today, and hopefully you are more today than you were yesterday. That's just kind of what it is to walk with the Lord. And we've been in this series now for a few weeks, and we've been talking about how to the preparation for change. We've talked about tossing out faulty methods of change. There are a lot of ways the world will teach you to change, and they just uh, just don't work. And uh, we've talked about uh, everybody getting on the same page with change, and it always starts with salvation. We've talked about that. Last time we talked about getting specific because there is one specific next thing, next thing that the Lord is probably speaking to every single one of us. And uh, how do we hear what that is? What is the one thing, Lord, that you're trying to do in Terry? And, and uh, today's, today's message, we're going to make a little bit of a change and transition here. We're going we're to talk about the very first step. Um, and that's, uh, and, and, and any, any faithful minister of the gospel has to be involved with preaching this message, I think repeatedly in the life of any church. It's a central message to the life of every Christian. So we're, we're, we're going to talk about... When we talk about sin, you know, we, we know that sin is, is a personal problem that everybody faces. Uh, Romans 3.23 tells us that all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. I, I heard a, a story about a preacher who um, was preaching on, you know, the fact that everybody sins at some level. And, and so... He makes that statement to his church, and he said, does anybody here really believe that you've got life wired, and you have no sin, and you're living a perfect life? If you that's you, just go ahead and stand up. Of course, the room got completely silent, and mate, wanting to make his point, this preacher just let that kind of float in the air for a minute. Pretty soon, this, off on the side, this, this elderly gentleman just very sheepishly decides to stand to his feet, and um, the preacher said, hey, wait, wait, what? You really believe that you are living a sinless, perfect life? And the uh, old guy said, well, no, not actually, but I thought somebody ought to stand up here and represent my wife's ex-husband. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, come on, honey. That's funny. Okay. Anyway, so, all right. So I'll fall short, except for that lady's ex-husband. Anyway, sin, sin, sin It really is a darkness. It's, it's uh, a stubbornness. It's a blindness. And um, I, I heard another, I don't know who, who came up with this, but, but basically when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Because when I sin, I'm inflicting suffering upon myself. I, I'm the one who suffers when I sin, yet I still do the things that I do. Why is that? It's because there's something in our nature that um, is, is there. It's a, even if you're, you're in Christ, even if you're dead to sin, there still is the old nature that kind of nips at your heels and, uh, and that's been a fairly um, a common, I think you've probably figured that out. Now, now I have to tell you, in my preparation for today's message, I have been experiencing a fairly significant spiritual headwind. I don't know if, if, you, if you get my picture, but I figure the enemy of our souls does not want us to talk about where we're going to go today, and um, I always expect some resistance anytime I step into the pulpit, but it just comes with stepping and pressing against the enemy's territory. And sometimes, I, I, have to, I have to confess, I would really like to not do this. I'd rather teach something fluffy, maybe pack the room with cotton balls and, you know, mint candy and so forth. Um, but I, I care about you, and when I feel like the Lord is moving on a topic like this, we're just going to wade into something today. So I'm going to ask you in advance to forgive me um, if I step on your toes, put on your seatbelts. We'll get through this okay. Smile back now, okay? <laughs> I'm not, you know. Steve said said get ready. Okay, I I don't know what that was all about, but <laughs> um, but um, I believe that you know when Jesus was talking about freedom, part of the of freedom uh, the freedom he was talking about was living in truth, and that's where we're going to go today. So it's not easy to challenge people about sin, but it really is the only way forward with God. And so we're going to hear several points. First one is this: in all positive change, the first step forward is repentance. <laughs> repentance. That's going to be our word for the day. Um, This this is a message today about repentance. I think every honest heart knows what it is to struggle with sin, and every honest heart knows what it is to try and then fail and fall down and get up again, and, and you get discouraged. Even the Apostle Paul struggled with this. He talked about this in Romans 7. He said, for the good that I will to do, I don't do it. But the evil I will not to do, or the stuff I don't want to do, that I practice. So here's this honesty coming through Paul and saying that he struggled with it. The, and his, his pain his pain emerges through this, this, this cry, this heart cry in this letter. How do I change? I want to change. I don't want to keep doing the, these things. I don't want to keep saying these things. I don't want to keep feeling this way. I don't want to keep you know fearing this way. I don't want my life to be filled with you know, anxiety and, and I don't want it to be about sensuality and I don't want my life filled with the pursuit of material happiness. I don't know what he's talking about. It's as if, you know, he's, he's saying these things that I pursue, they don't bring me happiness. and Only God can give me the things that only God can give me. And I, I So if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever wrestled with this and, and then felt disappointed because you were having difficulty seeing the change in your life, I just want you to hear this next sentence and let it get into your soul, you can change. You can change. And you know, you don't, don't have to always be the person that you are today or who you struggle with or the things that you struggle with. You can be a different person. And the first step in this is repentance. You know, the accusations can be silenced, the lies can cease, the, the chains can fall off, the bondages can be broken. And um, the key word this is a straightforward word today. It's a simple word, it's a biblical word. It's often misunderstood word repentance. Repentance is the first step in all change. All change that's going to be real, all change that's going to be lasting, all change that's God honoring and life changing, it starts with repentance. So if you're wondering, If you go through life and you wonder, why doesn't the gospel kind of light my soul up like I see in other people? If I'm wondering why other people seem to be growing forward in things of the Lord and loving God and their hunger for God and their delight in the Lord, but I don't seem to feel that way, why is that? The answer is repentance. Repentance is the first step in all change because God loves you and he wants the best for you and his first move towards you is always on the, on the point of him identifying some specific thing in your life about which you have the opportunity to repent. Now, maybe you think, I've done that. Well, I've done that, Terry. I've, I've repented. No, <laughs> because if you'd repented, you would have changed. Ezekiel... Um, in fact, repentance, you know this, this message, repentance is the first step in change. That is the message of every single prophet in the Old Testament. Every single one of them. You can look them up. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, you know, Hosea, all of them. You can read them. You'll see it's the same message. Here's Ezekiel's comment from 1830. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Every one of these prophets, the same message, repent. They understood something that we've kind of lost sight of, I think, at times, and that is this, that repentance is the thing that helps us turn the corner with God's agenda for our lives. You know, uh, if, if you wonder why you can't seem to get forward or move forward with the Lord, repentance is we have to genuinely repent. Now, we have dreams for our future. We think about the things that we want to have happen tomorrow, and, uh, and Genesis chapter 4 tells us this. It makes a comment about sin. It says, sin is crouching at your door, skulking around, waiting. And its desire is for you. It's a desire is to rule over you. Some translations, other translations say it's ready to pounce, out to get you, waiting to attack you like a lion and destroy you. It's desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin wants to tear you apart, wants to tear apart your family, wants to tear apart your marriage, your children, your future, everything you value, sin wants to eat into that. And our typical picture. Of the word repent um, is some loveless, condemning person shouting at us, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> repent, you know. Um, and, um, and then our natural response to even a loving message, but given without love, is complete resistance, complete rejection. And um, I think... We get lost some, sometimes in the static of how that is, but resistance is the thing that turns the corner with God's agenda in our life. The word repent that you'll see over and over in Scripture is metaneo. Metaneo, and it literally means, metaneo literally means after think. After think. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, mean, we, we see it translated as a change of mind. Okay, That's how you would understand it. After literally says after think. All change begins with a change of mind of mind. That's repentance. Every Old Testament prophet was preaching it. And, you know, maybe, maybe your perspective is that, well, yeah, those are the Old Testament guys. They're just, just all so harsh. But, um, okay, if that's what you think, let's take a look and see how it shows up in the New Testament. Just to kind of lay some groundwork here for us. John the Baptist. Jesus called John the Baptist God's messenger. Jesus said about John the Baptist, he's the greatest of anybody born of a woman. That's a pretty all-encompassing statement. John the Baptist, um, may, you can read these. I'll give you these uh, references. I'm just going to blow through these. Matthew 3 to John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of God, and at, God of God is at hand. The disciples, Mark 6. The disciples went out and preached that, that people should repent. Acts 3.19, this is Luke um, speaking. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 17.30, but God now commands all men everywhere to repent. 2 Timothy 2.25. Now, this, this, is, this passage talks about the fact that repentance is given by God. Let that sink in for a minute. So, uh, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. God grants to people repentance. What does that say for people who um, won't Repent about the truth. Anyway, okay. Second Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now, you might want to up the ante on me a little bit more and say, okay, Terry, fine. Um, that's fine. So you've quoted some Old Testament prophets and even some New Testament disciples but not my Jesus. Are you guys, are you going out there for hot dogs? Could somebody cook me one here's... Make sure I get a cooked hot dog, would you, Kale? Thank you. All right. I mean, I've offended people in a sermon before, but... I wiped out a whole generation. Okay, so we were talking about how harsh those Old Testament prophets were, and, and even the disciples were pretty hard, but not my Lord Jesus, not my shepherd Jesus. If you think that, Read some more of the Word of God, okay? Because here are some... Now, the next few passages I'm going to blow through, these are red letter. These are the words of Jesus. Luke 15, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In Revelation 2, Jesus is giving a message to some of the churches that he left behind, and he says, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you Repent. Revelation 2.16, a few verses later, repent or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against them. He's talking in this particular context, he's talking about people who would maintain a position that it's okay for Christians to live with sexual immorality, a very broad range. He's saying for people who say that's okay, here's what I have to say about that. Um, Repent or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's repent. Yeah, but Jesus loves us, right? Yeah, he does love us. But, but Revelation 3 tells us something about the way the Lord treats those that he loves. You probably know the scripture. As many as I love, I, do you know read the rest of it? Rebuke and chasten, correct. You know, I think, I think there is a philosophy present in the North American church that would suggest that Jesus, that that scripture is misinterpreted, that it should say that as many as Jesus loves, He pampers and coddles, but that is not what the scripture says. He's not a pamper. Jesus' love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love, and he wants you to enjoy the difference between living a life of sin and and without sin, and and that's where that's headed, and in the same, um, Jesus, in the same statement as John the Baptist, you see it in Matthew 4, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is heaven, so you, you get the point that repentance is not an Old Testament concept, it was drilled home by the Lord Savior himself, as well as everyone that he raised up as disciples. And um, I, I, I hope you understand why this is such an important message for us to go through, to keep our seatbelts on. We'll get through this. We'll be fine. Um, but this is really, really an important foundation for us because this nail, this word repentance, this change of mind, tells us that it's it, the, the, the change starts with a change of mind. And if you think that through, you have to understand what that means is that in, in all sin, there is self-deception. Every bit of sin has some self-deception. Well, you say, how does self-deception come into play? In order to get to the place where, as a believer, you're able to sin, you have to perform some mental gymnastics. You, you have to start rationalizing and redefining what sin is. <laughs> I wish you could be present in my study sometimes when the Lord is having conversations with me because you have to know that before you sit and hear this message, I sit through the message too, right? And it's a widow deal. And um, there are, by the way, there are always people around you that are willing to help you rationalize sin. Okay, there are. In fact, I found a survey and a survey talked about, and and the survey said, name um, rationalizations that lead to sin, Okay, so I'm going to work you down. You remember the top 10, old David Letterman, the top 10? This is, a, this is a, like a top five, and we're going to go from number five and work our way up to number one. So the number five reason that came back in the survey of rationalization that leads us in is, is this. I'll just do it one time. I can handle it. Yeah, it's wrong. I can just do it this one time. I've been busy, and I'm tired and a bit restless, so I'm just going to try this just once. I can handle it. <laughs> number four reason, nobody will know. My sister won't know, my spouse won't know, my Savior won't know. Won't know? Really? Won't know? I mean, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that, that would come to mind when I think about that, but here's a verse that every mother and father should teach their children. It's in Numbers <laughs> 32, 23. Be certain that your sins will find you out. Won't know? You can try that. Uh, we'll see how that... Okay, and the, number three reason... Number three, rationalization. Um, That's not sin, it's not wrong, because everybody's doing it. (laughs) Everybody's, hey, listen, the majority response is not a test for validity, okay? It is not. If your base on life is what's most popular, what's most prevalent, what's most everywhere, you will spend your life in a lot of hot water. Sin is tearing a line of destruction through the things that you want and you value the most. And uh, the things that uh, is happening in our culture and it's all this list of things that the Lord forbids. Okay, number two reason. This can't possibly be wrong. It can't possibly because it feels so right. You know, I've never felt this good. I've never felt this happy. You know, there, that's an evidence that the sin is literally taking over your life and that's a very bad place to be. And then number one, number one most popular rationalization in the survey um, it, that leads to sin is, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. I can do wrong. I can live a lie. I can cut the corner. I can act just fine and have it all, maybe for a little while, but in the end, you just, you just can't do that. You just can't do that. Lisa and I were um, at the toy store recently, and in... that's Home Depot, in case you want mean... to <laughs> um We happened to have a chance encounter with a person and I'm not going to tell you who or when or anything for um, uh, reasons that would be inappropriate for me to. But this person has chosen to abandon family and so forth um, for no reasons other than personal sin. And we had not encountered this person for quite a while in person, you know, and uh, so we come around the corner looking for whatever we were looking for and, um, there this person is. And it's like, you know, they know us, we know them, we know the circumstances, they know, we know the circumstances. Oh, hey, isn't it nice weather outside? And there was um, an emptiness of hope and the rationalization will not bring you the peace. Anyway, just, and um, here's the thing, When, when repentance, when genuine repentance happens, it leads to two things. First thing it leads to is confession. We see the word confession all throughout the scriptures. Um, the word constantly, the Greek word that you'll see in there constantly used is homologeo. It's two words with two two root words: homologeo, homo, which means same, logeo, it means say. Same say is what the word confession means. I mean. What that word is meant to teach us is that confession is to say the same thing about it that God says about it. Same say, confession. You can't say what God says about your sin until you see what God sees in it as well. Repentance is the process of seeing what God sees. And when repentance is genuine, it leads to confession. And the second thing it leads to is restitution. The surest proof of an unrepentant person is a lack of restitution. You know, restitution is where I make it right with the people that my sin injured. Repentance, when, it, when, it's, when repentance is genuine, I want to make it right. That's restitution. Okay, first step, repentance is the first step of all change. The second thing is repentance is not easy. Just in case you think this is going to be easy, I'm going to tell you right now it's not. Okay, here we go. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Okay, that is one confusing sentence. Okay? There's some emotions going on here. Paul is talking about a letter that he'd written to some people, and and he he saw that it grieved them, and then he felt bad, but now he doesn't feel bad because it did make them feel bad, but it only made them feel bad for a little while. Okay, it's kind of confusing, but he gets to the point of why it's okay. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Pause time out. I don't know that the Lord has ever used me except with my children and they were little to impress upon them grief in order to get them to repent. It's not our place to hammer into other people grief. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So be careful here. Just because you see, Paul did something where he was teaching. This is an apostle speaking to a church. That's different than you and me feeling the the leisure and the release to start hammering on somebody else because of their sin. When you get a genuine, God-given opportunity to speak into someone's life, do it with love and do it with humility. Do it with a a full realization of the mirror of who you are, a sin-filled person as well. So... don't don't take away from this that it's your role to start telling people to repent because of the sin in their life. The Lord will give you that opportunity. That's when you step in, but you do it with, with humility and with love. Okay, so he's written this letter. He sees it grieves the people, but that's not the point where I want you to go quite yet. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Here we go. Here's the point. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Not all sorrow leads to repentance, and there's, this, there's, there, there's such a thing as worldly sorrow, right? Worldly sorrow. Here Paul teaches us, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces Death. The two characteristics I see here of worldly sorrow are regret and death. You know, it's sorry I feel so bad. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I got hurt, right? People don't say that, but that's really what their sorrow is about. Sorry I couldn't handle it. Sorry I, I look so bad at this. Sorry that you don't like this. That's worldly sorrow. And the way that you know it's worldly is that worldly sorrow produces regret. You know, you're not really repenting, but But godly grief leads to repentance. Not all grief is godly. Some is worldly grief. And um, so how do I know if my grief is worldly grief? Or if it's worldly grief, it's because it's all about me. I'm sorry because of how this is affecting me. It's a focus upon ourselves. It's, you know, worldly sorrow doesn't lead us to repentance. And tragically, some people have worldly grief, worldly sorrow for their whole life. That's how they live. Never, ever truly sorry for their sin. They never get to the place where David did in Psalm 51, where he's facing how his sin, how, how it affected God and how it affected people around him. And, and some people, they just end up centered in self-pity and, and it's all about me and how it happened and how it affected me. And, and, and worldly sorrow that goes a lifetime without repentance, that that is what Paul is teaching us here, is worldly grief that results in death, is the word he uses. And this scripture is not talking about physical death here. It's talking about eternal death, as in the wages of sin is death, as in hell for all eternity. I mean, there is nothing more serious than where we are right now in this, in this moment, because This scripture is teaching us that a lifetime of shallow, worldly regret without repentance is a road that leads to hell. That is not a fun sentence to say or to hear, right? And I hope that now I'm not your enemy because I've told you the truth, (laughs) But to the one who doesn't hunger for God's word, who has no interest in passionate worship, who never shares their faith, and they aren't growing in righteousness, and and you know, they live a lifetime of worldly grief. You know, I'm sorry that this cost me. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that you don't like this. That's just worldly regret, worldly grief, and it leads to death. If repentance was easy, everybody'd be doing it. <laughs> it's not easy repentance means changing your mind, literally changing your mind. It means coming to this place where you'd do it differently if you could, if you could only go back. And, you know, if you're like me, you've had some major mistakes in your life. And, you know, if you've repented of those things, then your heart is, man, I, if I could go back in, I wouldn't do that. I just wouldn't do that. I wish I'd never had done that. I wish I would never have gone there. I wish I'd never had that conversation. It's, it's, it's one of those love hate things. I wish I'd never done those things, but I wouldn't remove it from my life because of what it did to change me as a man and as a son and all of those things, you know. And I look back and I say, I've repented of that. It's a major mistake. It wasn't, it wasn't my mom's fault. It wasn't my pastor's fault. It wasn't, I'm the one that blew it. It wasn't my ex wife's fault. I, I, I blew it. If I could go back, I would do it differently. No pretending, no going through the motions here, 100% genuine. I wouldn't choose that again, and you've got to really mean it. That's what repentance is. Uh, years ago, I might have told this uh, story one time before, but years ago in another church, I sat in my office one day with a guy, um, and I, I, I was sitting down with him at my request. I said, hey, we, we need to talk. This was a, a brother in the Lord, a believer, and um, we had had a close enough relationship that he'd asked me to speak into his life. And he kind of had, I don't know how to describe this, he kind of flipped out, wigged out, and uh, decided that, um, he, he, and I said to him, hey, you left your wife, and you're living with another woman. What's up with that? <laughs> and um, well, my wife, da da, da da and I said, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, stop right there. I don't want to hear about your wife. I mean, you can talk. we can talk about that later, but I'm asking you about why you're doing the things that you're choosing to do. I cut him off. You know, I guess that's what you do if you're a loving brother and you've been invited at some point. At some point, he can say, you can stop speaking to my life right now. Okay. (laughs) But if you ask me to speak into your life, okay, let's do the real thing, okay? So in love, I'm smiling. I'm trying to say to this guy, what's the deal? That's your wife. I love you. I love her. Fix this. Well, my wife, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) No, stop it. Well, I know I'm wrong, he says to me. And I said, Good. Perfect. That means you're gonna leave this woman and go back and fix it with your wife. No, I'm not. I'm gonna I am I've left her, I'm gonna marry this woman, and when this is all over, I'm gonna go back and ask God to forgive me. That is a terrible plan. (laughs) That's playing Russian roulette. It's like planning the death of your soul. To somehow contemplate sin and calculate it out and measure it, all the while thinking, oh, you know, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Um, and that's, that was this guy's strategy for relationship with God. And, and then thinking that somehow you'll get to the other side of this and feign something and that God will just say, oh, well, you know, I can see your point, so let me redefine what holiness is. That is not how it works. You can't fake this. You can't phone this in. You have to come to the place where you genuinely say, I would, I would go back and undo that if I could. Jesus tells us to repent. And the heart behind that is why some people literally have to go to ruins before their heart gets to the place where they're open to it. They literally have to get to the bottom before they'll ever come to a place and genuinely say, this was a bad plan from day one. Repentance is the first step in all change. Two, it's not easy. Um, Sad to have to tell you number three. Sometimes repentance is impossible. Sometimes repentance is impossible. You can come to the place and... um, it's just, it's, this is as serious as it gets in terms of biblical instruction. And maybe you're wondering, well, wait a second, Terry, is that really true? Can you actually get to a point of no return? Can we resist and rebel and sin against the light of truth to the point where it's too late for me? The answer in a single word is yes. And uh, we're going to come to Hebrews 6 in just a minute. Psalm 103 verse 9 says this, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. You can interpret that if you want, but that's pretty simple. And, um, you know, there is a time when the Lord will stop striving with a person. There is a point where God will say, you know, you think that's so good. You think that's really better than me. You think you know better than me, and that's okay. This breaks my heart, but okay. You can have what you think is better instead of me. You can have what you're asking for. And God ceases striving with people. There, are, there is this verse, and it's at least once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, there may be more, but I know it's in both places. Hebrews 3 and in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't just assume that you can get this all together anytime you want. Maybe you think, maybe you've believed, or maybe someone's told you that, you know, uh, come on, Terry, you don't know what you're talking about here. I can sin and resist and rebel. I can run and refuse as long as I want. And then I can can get this right with God when I'm good and ready. (laughs) Incorrect. That's really not true. Here's what Jesus said. He said in John 6, No one comes unless the Spirit draws him. Think about the implications of that. You're not coming to God anytime you're good and ready. You're coming when God gets you to the ground sometimes and pulls your heart back toward him. And God and if God says if God himself says that's it, then it's it. And that's scary. Well, Pastor Terry, you better have a scripture to back that up. Okay. Here we go. Hebrews 6. Now, um, this is, most people believe that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. I happen to believe that too. Um, And so it's describing, this passage is describing a person, starting in verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Paul tells us it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Hebrews chapter 12 is a Bible illustration of that truth at work. A lot of us miss this. Um, There's a lot going on in the story, but it's an illustration of when this is going on, when it's too late, and the context of the story are trials and uh, what God's trying to do and train us and teach us in those trials. So um, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone, and for holiness for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse sixteen See to it that no one is sexually immoral. By the way, I don't believe this is only talking about um, sexual sexually immoral acts. The term adulterers is used commonly throughout Scripture as referring to unfaithfulness to God. Okay. I'm not substituting that for you, but I'm telling you that in many places the the immorality and adultery is is, is spiritual adultery as well as physical. Okay, so um, don't get hung up over that. And I can make a case for that. I'm not going to go there today. Okay, so he's saying, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Okay, Remember the story about Esau? Let's figure out what he's talking about here. Um, This is a reference back to the Old Testament. And um, if you remember, Isaac had um, two boys, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. They were born uh, seconds apart. Jacob was the second born. Esau was, um, and he was mom's favorite, okay? Um, And uh, uh, Esau was the first born. He was dad's favorite. And these two boys were as different as they could be. You know, Esau was a, you know, hairy guy. He was an outdoorsman. He had an AR-15 probably, right? Okay. And um, not making any gun comments. I guess I just made a gun comment. Anyway. Okay. So Jacob is an outdoors man's man kind of a guy. Harry probably doesn't take a bath, right? I know some of you guys are outdoor guys and you take a bath. You should. Last night was Saturday. Okay. I'm not saying you should go take one right now. I should just keep going here. Okay. So... Jacob was a different guy. He was more of the GQ, um, fine cuisine, dressed for success. He didn't have an AR-15. I think he had a um, PP, Walther PPK with a silencer on it, right? Okay. So um, the James Bond gun, that has nothing to do with God or anything. I don't know why he did that. Okay. So, and I don't prefer either one of those guys. I'm just telling you how different these guys are. Okay. They're different. But Esau, Scripture describes him as a profane person. And Jacob, in spite of his, his, his weaknesses, his Scripture says that he loved God. So one day, Esau comes back from hunting, and he's really, really hungry. Jacob's cooking this stew. It smells really, really good. And Esau says, Jacob, give me some of the stew. I'm hungry. And Jacob says to him, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. And you can read this whole story in Genesis 25. It won't be nearly as fun as the colorful version I'm telling you. But anyway, so um, the scripture, the scriptures talk about two things. It talks about the inheritance and the blessing. They're two different things that were that the father would confer upon the firstborn son. And um, you know it was it was wasn't just material. It was spiritual. The blessing. So there, there was a lot involved there, and. Um, it was a big deal. We don't have that big deal today. We we try to treat all of our children equally, and that's you know I think the right thing for us to do. But back then it was a really big deal. And Jacob always resented the fact that he was only born seconds later, but he missed out on all that stuff. He wanted the blessing, and he wanted he wanted the blessing and the inheritance. Okay, so um, and um, Esau, he could give a rip. It meant nothing to him, and he, so he says fine, and he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. There's sermons screaming to be preached out of that. Okay, So in the context of this, Genesis says that Esau despised. He scorned, he showed contempt for his birthright. So now you'll understand this in this text, which says that it says a profane or unholy person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What happened after he ate it? He's thinking, what have I done? Wait a second. I'm not hungry anymore, but how good a deal did I just make? Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, it's always afterwards, right? It's always afterwards. After you have the thing you wanted, after you had that thing that you had to consume, that pleasure, that you, after you had made that deal, committed that sin, it's always afterward. Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, now here come the scariest, some of the scariest words in the New Testament. He was rejected. That word literally means disqualified. Put off. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it. And if you, have, if you're looking, if you happen to bring your Bible with you, which I think is always a good thing to do, you should be checking me out when I tell you these things, to see, make sure they're sh- they're so. You should do that Berean thing. Have your heart ready and available, but go check it out. Okay. so And if you happen to bring with you today the NIV, if that's the translation you've got, you should cross out the word blessing on that passage, because that interpretation of the original language there is wrong. It's just flat out wrong. It wasn't the blessing that he was seeking. It was the opportunity to repent. That word blessing is a wrong translation. Every other New Testament. Every other translation of the New Testament gets it right, but the NIV has it wrong. They came out with a revision in their 2011 version, and they got closer, but still not quite right. You can see I hold them to. <laughs> I hold them to a stand. So Esau was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He sought the repentance with tears. He cried, he wept, he pleaded, but he couldn't repent. It was too late. Too late for Esau. Now, we're going to stop the message there um, because um, I I knew that the topic today was going to be weighty, and I actually asked Steve before service, could you shorten the worship at the beginning and let's do a little bit more worship at the end. Um, and because where we're going to go from here, which we'll get to next week, is something I want to take time on. I don't want to run through it too quickly. It's how do I repent? How will, how, how, you know, what are the fruits of repentance? It's the better side of this message on repentance. And so here's how I want to leave this for us today. I'm going to ask of you to do some private homework. You can choose to do it or not choose to do it. The reason I would ask you to do it is because it will help you. And so I've prepared this little sheet, and it's going to be half sheet. The ushers will hand them to you when you leave, which, you know, we're not quite there yet. But it's just, it says at the top, speak to my heart, Lord, about any of the sinful issues in my life. And here's a list. Maybe none of these are in your life, and the Lord will speak to you about something different, but maybe something in here will leap off like it's highlighted. I didn't highlight anything, but the Holy Spirit may highlight them for you. And, you know, I challenge you to take this list and to consider some of the passages that we've gone through today about repentance. Now, let me also say this. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. Romans one, Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. 8, 8, Can you remember Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who are called not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Okay, so this is not about you being condemned. If you go through this exercise and you feel condemnation, understand right now that is the voice of hell. That is not God. The Lord wants to build you and restore you and fill you with life, not to tell you you're worthless. Don't be condemned by this. Don't be condemned by anything you've heard today. The enemy of your soul would be the one to condemn you, but never the Lord. Certainly not me. Right? So also knowing that the Lord corrects the people that he loves. And if you feel like you're going to get corrected by the Lord, it's because he loves you. If changing was easy, everybody would do it. The problem is that most Christians are kind of like, we're kind of off, awful lot like our non-believing neighbors. We, you know, But this is the first step forward. Most people have never really been taught how to repent, to really come to a place of repentance for the sin. Next week we're going to talk about how to repent and how will I know that I've repented And I just pray that this will be for you, as it is for me, um, a high-water point in my life when repentance becomes the norm. And its I wish I could tell you that, oh, I repented. I mean, I could tell you the day I got saved. I can't tell you the day I repented because there's a lot of them. (laughs) I'd like for there to be fewer, not because... I'm going to do it less but because I don't need to do it as many times. But I find myself revisiting this topic. And um, it's always an important time. I had a I've had a high watermark when when I've come to true repentance. And it comes down to this. God loves us. Sin hurts us. And God wants to change us. So the prayer is, Lord, change me. Change me. So when you go out today after we worship for a couple songs and please grab one of the sheets of paper put it in your pocket at least pretend you're going to do something with it and then let the Holy Spirit spend time with you on it later this week let's pray Father I trust you in everything I'm grateful God that in my weakness that you show yourself strong God we know that our sin is what keeps us even though we're forgiven our sin is what keeps us from growing into a deeper relationship with you It's what keeps us from being more like Christ. Father, forgive us, lead us, order our steps. And Lord, help us fight down the urge to accept and rely on all of those rationalizations. pray in Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.